Good morning, everybody. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors that get to walk us through the text this morning. We're getting into this interesting section of the book of Colossians. There's kind of the prelude, which is the last couple of weeks. Then this is kind of like the pivot, like the, the main point Paul's getting at here. This is the warning section where Paul kind of goes, look out. And then the next couple sections, he's going to talk about applying these things and what, so what, like some of the ethics, the implications, the dimensions of this. We're in the warning section. Uh, it's, you know, the warnings are interesting, uh, depending on how much you've been burned before you pay attention to them or not. You know, depending on you see a warning label, you don't know whether to listen to that label or not. You know, you see the sign on the road that says, you know, danger, 55, curvy road. Most of you just ignore that warning, right? You just like, nope, I'm going to keep going 65 around this corner. That's fine. But if you're driving something else more, more risky, you might pay attention to that warning. So how do you pay attention to warnings? Which ones do you pay, pay attention to? Which ones do you not pay attention to? You know, we're, we got this baby in our house, you know, three weeks, three months, three weeks old, you know, turns four months soon. And I remember taking these like sleep training classes. They talk about the four-month sleep regression. Watch out for the sleep regression thing. Uh, and the nice thing is when you've made no progress, you don't have to be worried about regressing. So we're, I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about the four-month sleep regression. With my first kid, I was like, oh, no, four-month sleep regression. Here it comes because it was going well. But I'm like, yeah, we'll get through it. But Olivia's getting pretty strong, you know, increasing in feistiness. That's my three-and-a-half-month-old. She's, she's pretty tough. And kind of the point now where, like, you're, you're feeding her with a bottle. Just to be clear, that's how I have to feed her with a bottle. I have to feed her with a bottle. And she's like... She's getting like feisty, getting her hands involved, you know, and every now and then I'm holding her and I kind of like ahead of time will grab her arm, put it behind my back, pinch it in, then I'll go around her body, pinch this arm like this and then like this so that she's stuck like this. Because <laughs> otherwise she gets her hands involved and keeps knocking the bottle out of her mouth and uh, especially in the middle of the night when she's extra feisty, we're trying to get her to go a little longer, you know, and she's hungry. But there's a, this piece of me deep in my body that just wants to be like, stop helping me. You know, stop helping. Stop helping. You're not helping. You're not, you're helping is not helping, you know, and she's get her hands. And, and it's mad because then she gets, knocks a bottle in her mouth and she cries and it's like this frustrating thing. I would never yell at her because I would never do anything wrong. But it's like the stop, <laughs> stop helping me. Stop helping me. And this, this like, the father speaking to his kids saying, stop helping me, is a lot of what Paul's getting at here in Colossians 2. Stop trying to help me save you. Stop it. Your helping is actually hurting. Your participation is actually getting in the way. Your efforts are actually inhibiting what I'm doing here. Yes, there are things you can do to participate and contribute in terms of living out your faith, but in terms of securing your faith, of getting you saved, of helping you walk in union with me, if you help, you actually get in the way. Stop helping me. And he's going to address this like human tradition that's longstanding, that's all related to this idea. Do something to earn your salvation. Or don't do something to earn your salvation. But somehow you have to help me save you. And that's actually demonic teaching. And we see this a couple of times in this text. So we see this in Colossians 2 um, verse 8. Human tradition according to elemental spirits of the world. It's not talking about like hydrogen and, and carbon, el the elements. You know, that's more modern. Talking about elemental spirits. This is Paul's way of talking about demons, paganism, demonic forces. That comes up again in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's another Paul's way of talking about um, these spiritual forces of darkness that work through human traditions, things passed down. We see it again in chapter 2, um, verse 20. If Christ who died to the elemental spirits of the world, why do you submit to its regulations? Verse 22, according to human precepts and teachings, that there's this idea that there's human tradition that's demonically infused that's trying to get all of you to feel like you have to keep earning and contributing to your salvation. So it's not just, oh, I learned it from my parents. 
It's not just, oh, you know, humans, we try to earn stuff. It's demonically infused attempts to try to help all of us feel unstable apart from our own contribution to our salvation. And Paul's big thrust in this text is stop helping. (laughs) Stop trying to help. That you actually trying to contribute to your salvation undermines it, gets in the way of it, and makes things substantially worse. And so I'm going to show us how this human tradition thing actually goes all the way back to Genesis 3, this idea of earn it, contribute it, fix it yourself. But really what I want us to see is how that is playing out nowadays in our culture, in our own hearts, all the time. This pressure we feel to contribute or to help with our salvation. And Paul's going to say, no, 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 that's not how this works. So let me pray, and then we'll um, keep walking in this text. Lord, help us. Help us stop trying to help ourselves be saved and instead help us just be receivers. They would get our hands out of the way. Uh, We'd get our feisty attempts to try to contribute out of the way and that we can rest in your finished work. And then even as we get into the latter parts of this book, chapters three and four, as we see these moral commands, that those wouldn't be about trying to earn something uh, or secure something, but they'd be just about trying to honor and respect and love. It's your name we pray. Amen. This is Colossians 2 verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So as you receive him, so walk in him. We don't graduate from being passive receptors of God's grace. We tend to, as newborn Christians, go, wow, the grace of God. And then eventually, a couple weeks in, a couple months in, a couple years in, we go, I got to do something to earn this. I'm trying to get out of balance of this debt here thing that we have going on. I don't, wanna, I don't like the idea of being fully a recipient or fully a receiver. I like kind of being a contributor, an achiever. And so this human tendency to try to do it yourself, to build a resume, to earn status with God is deep inside of this. And this warning here is for us. And it's direct and it's applied. And when he talks about here, um, don't being taken captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, it's important for us to recognize that uh, there are things seeking to take us captive. That there are threats, that they are demonic, that they play out through people. It's important for us to understand even that these humans who are the agents or the, the activists pushing demonic philosophies and captives, that they themselves are not ever the enemy. Right? Ephesians 6 talks about we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against the spiritual forces of darkness over these heavenly places. That even if we see a person or a, or, or, or a religion or a group of people or false teachers, whatever you want to call them, even if we see those people pushing these agendas, we have to understand that there's actually demonic powers behind them animating them. That humans are not our enemies. They're ultimately our, our mission field. We need to be able to listen to and see through uh, what's going on behind them and actually have empathy for those who are being oppressed by false teaching, even their own false teaching. Watch out, they're being taken captive by these false teachings, these deceptive philosophies, empty deceit according to human tradition, elemental spirits of the world. What I'm saying here that this human tradition, um, Paul's talking about how in Colossae, the church in Colossians is actually kind of doing three things here. One, they have this kind of uh, bulk of Christian teaching, Jesus loves us, Jesus died for us. But then they also have this um, like kind of bad vision of Judaism, which is do the right laws and you can have special status with God. But there's also this third thing going on in Colossae in Greco-Roman world, which is a paganism, which is kind of like this, uh, the earth and the world has energy and we participate in it through like rituals and sacrifice. And in Colossians, the false teaching that's coming down is like this 
combination mashup of weird Judaism, of weird paganism, and of Christianity. And the church is starting to get these things all swelled and mashed up together and it's obscuring the pure, sheer, free grace of Jesus. And Paul says this is human tradition. Talks about human precepts and teachings. Uh, These authorities which propagate the worldview uh, regulators, right? Just like in modern times, right? You talk about how there's views you're allowed to have and views you're not allowed to have. There are views that are the standard teaching of the academy and there are the other views. This is not a new situation. It's just more documented because of the media. But there's always been the human tradition passing this on. And I want to say that it's not new. It actually goes all the way back to the beginning. And this is why the sermon title is called Vegan Clothes and Forgiven Loans is uh, partially because it halfway rhymed and it popped in my head, but also because in Genesis 3 what we see here is there's this problem. Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God. They go their own way. And the first reaction that they have is that he makes them vegan clothes. That's what happens. Um, Chapter 3, verse 7. The eyes of both were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That the first instinct humans have when they recognize they're sinful, when they recognize they're not good enough, is to take matters into their own hands and solve their own problem. They hide when I need to cover up. So they take it into their own hands and they hide. They make these loincloths full of things and they, they cover themselves and they hide from the Lord. The sovereign, all-knowing one who made all things, the first instinct we get is do it yourself and hide. I think if all of us are honest about all of our sinfulness, our first instinct, whenever we fall short, is to cover up and hide and do it ourselves. And the sad thing about this is they're not just hiding from the Lord, but imagine Adam and Eve had previously been walking naked and unashamed and, and connected and loving, and all of a sudden, in order to hide from the God, they're now they're covering up from each other. And so it doesn't just inhibit intimacy with the Lord, but it inhibits intimacy with each other. And this tendency to, make, to take fig leaves, to make vegan clothes, to cover yourself up, to hide from the Lord, to hide from each other, I would argue that every false religion that every uh, tip for success, every life hack that's gonna make you feel, feel like you're living a full life is some version of do it yourself, cover up, hide from God and from other people. It's this belief that things inside of me are not okay and not right and so what I'm gonna do is change things outside of me. I don't like what's going on in my heart, so I'll change my face. I don't like what's going on in my heart, so I'll change my clothes. I don't like what's going on in my heart, so I'll change my behavior. I don't like what's going on in my heart, so I'll conceal, change, paint, modify, conform. That from Islam to Mormonism to paganism to Joe Roganism, whatever you want to call it, (laughs) we have this embedded sense of I'm not quite the way I should be and so I'm going to change external realities rather than deal with my internal reality. And this plays out in a bunch of ways. So what we see here in in this text is kind of the way it functions. There's like the initial warning in verse 8 and then there's another warning um, that kind of plays out in more details later on. This is verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to the festival or the moon or Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What Paul's getting at is like, yes, the Old Testament had laws and instructions and teachings that were, that were meaningful and important, but guess what? Those were not the real thing. It was not the real thing. We had a preview, a shadow, 
that if you look at history from beginning to end, Jesus stands at the center of history and the sun is shining this way and basically Israel gets the shadow of what's coming forward. And so they're moving towards Christ, but they're living in the shadow of what's coming on. And these, these regulations, these things, I mean, people kind of give the Old Testament laws a bad rap. Here you have food and drink, but there's also commanded festivals, commanded Sabbath days, commanded rest days. So it's not like all the laws in the Old Testament are all just like don't, 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 don't. But a lot of them are like, you must drink wine for seven days straight on this week. You know, and they're like... Well, you know, twist my arm. I'll obey that law. You know, but there's, there's this instruction that's going on. It's kind of like, you know, I, you, I get invitations in the mail that are like, save the date for the wedding, right? And then later on, the real wedding invitation comes and it says, here's the, like, here's the details of it. And if I held on to that save the date and didn't pay attention to the, the real wedding invitation, that'd be just silly. When we were, um, before we built this building here, we were meeting in the building next door and there's this day we did this prayer walk when this was just a big dirt lot and we came out and we walked the whole place and we prayed over, the, prayed over the dirt in the future building and we got these little jars and we scooped the dirt up in the jars and took a jar home. It said home away from home and we're meant to be like this tool to pray for the future church, pray for the building here. And we're holding on this jar. I remember like really kind of emotionally, prematurely, sentimentally holding on this jar of dirt and thinking like, wow, this is really meaningful. I can't wait to keep this forever. And then we're in the building for like three months. I saw the jar of dirt and I was like, I don't know, I have the real thing now. <laughs> right? Like it was a shadow, it was a sign. It helped me look forward to it. But when the real thing came, I was like, I don't need this anymore. This, this, this fulfilled its purpose. I don't need help to pray for the church building because I see the church building all the time. I don't need this anymore. That part of what Paul's getting at is like, yes, there were commands and laws. And what's going on in the first century is they're going, hey, yes, you need a Jesus and Love Jesus, trust Jesus, trust Jesus died for your sins, and also do these ceremonies, do these sacrifices, do these, uh, these festivals, do these different things, and that's going to help you get saved. But part of what's getting at is your tendency to try to help is actually undermining the sheer grace of God. That the gospel is not Jesus plus some stuff, the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. That if you think that the gospel is Jesus plus something, you get nothing. But if the gospel is Jesus plus nothing, you get everything. That's the whole thrust of what Paul's getting at is yes, you had shadows, they were good while they lasted, but now that Christ is here, we don't need to look forward to the gospel anymore. We have it, it's revealed. Then he goes on to say this thing, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. That means just kind of like, uh, like kind of a Buddhist extinguishing of desire, just being, saying, doing hard things for hard things sake. Worship of angels, going on in details about visions. You know, there's a lot of books to be sold, people who go on in details about visions. You know, some, some kid like half dies for a little bit, has a vision of heaven, makes a million dollars. Going in details about visions, puffed out without reason by a sensuous mind. We need to understand that these, these regulations, verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, these only solve external realities. That if you think you're getting closer to God by not eating something or eating something, just stop. It's just not true. But there's this kind of new wave rise of paganism going on that people really think that there's like, you, maybe you don't think I'm getting closer to Jesus, but you can't think I can have this elevated state of consciousness or elevated existence if I, you know, just follow the right diet, right? What's crazy to me, if you walk up and down the grocery store, how many things are advertised using religious language? I drink this little, this stuff called LaCroix. Either you love LaCroix or you hate LaCroix, but it's like slightly flavored water and some people hate that, right? It's kind of bubbly. But one of the things it says on there is zero calories, innocent. And you're holding, you know, you have Coke here and you have innocence here. And it's like, you know, do I want guilt or innocence, right? 
How, how many desserts are advertised? You know, guilt-free, right? You, you eat bad on a, on a Friday and you atone for it on a Sunday by eating salads. You punish yourself by eating salads. And you feel your self-esteem is down and then you eat a salad and your self-esteem is up. And then you, like we, we may not like actually think we're going to heaven because we eat a salad, but you may think, you know, I'm actually, I think I'm worthy of love now. <laughs> I ate a salad. <laughs> You eat two crumble cookies and you're just curled up in a ball feeling sorry for yourself. And you're going, how could I? Who could love this person? I'm terrible. I'm disgusting. You know, and yes, God loves me because he's perfect, but who else? You know, and there's... So most Christians who kind of have a good understanding of the gospel, generally speaking, aren't going to say... Jesus loves me based on what I do, but your sense of dignity and self-worth as an image bearer, beloved child of God, when you find that being tossed about by what you ate yesterday or what you didn't do yesterday or how you did at work today, like it's revealing this kind of, I'm trying to help God love me. You never say that because that's bad doctrine, but you would feel that and connect with that. And Paul's saying, don't pass judgment on you. That includes you. Don't let anybody pass judgment on you. That includes, don't you pass judgment on yourself by submitting these regulations according to human precepts and teachings. That the default human tradition here is to make fig leaves, to cover ourselves, to hide ourselves, to take matters into our own hands rather than to actually trust in the finished, finalized work of Jesus on the cross. And I think a big part of growing in self-awareness and maturity as a Christian is to see the various ways that we make fig leaves, that we atone for our own sin, that we try to cover, that we try to hide, to observe those patterns, to pay attention to them, to confess them to our friends and family and say, when you see me doing this fig leaves thing, let me know because I don't want to do it anymore. Instead of thinking in terms of these human traditions, this demonic investment in us trying to help ourselves be saved, Paul reminds us of the opposite of this. Here's what he says. For in him, he says, instead of this, chapter two, verse nine, for in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. You don't need to go looking for a full experience of God anywhere outside the person of Jesus. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You're not lacking anything. That if you believe in Christ, you are full of God. If you believe in Christ, you have everything you need. You're not missing you know, every now and then I go through periods where like I'll eat like extra healthy or extra unhealthy and I think that's part of the deal, you know, in November, December you gain some weight because it's, you know, my anniversary and it's Thanksgiving, it's Christmas and then kind of January I like tend to reset some of this stuff and there's these times where you're eating what you know your body needs and you're still hungry and you realize that like you've kind of been programmed to like have your desires off, right? That you, you get all your you eat all the meat you need, you eat all the carbs you need, you eat all the fat you need and you're feeling pretty good but then like you're still kind of hungry and you're going like, I'm full, I'm good but I have this like weird insecurity about actually I also want to eat four more pieces of bread, you know, for no reason but I just kind of feel like that and there's like this, in Christ you have everything you need but part of like the human insecurity is to go like, is there more? Do I need more? Do I have enough? Am I, like we, we have this scarcity mentality that's rooted in not feeling connected to the Lord. And so we're looking and grappling and grasping. He's like, you're full. You're good. In him, you're also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Let's talk about circumcision for a little bit. This will be kind of fun. So <laughs> imagine with me that you are uh, Jewish, like real Jewish like it's first century, like you've been doing this. You've been following the book 
you know, the book of Moses, the Pentateuch, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, that fifth book, is like the centerpiece of the covenant that the Jews held onto and looked forward to. And what happens in the book of, in, in this book of the covenant, that God is assembling a people Israel, and he commands that they be circumcised, all the people. He's building a kingdom of priests. And here's why that's significant, is in Egypt, where Israel came out of slavery from, in Egypt, only the priests were meant to be circumcised. And the reason that they were circumcised was it was meant to be an indication that you are committed to the service of the gods even like from the most intimate parts, right? You're intimately connected to the service of the gods. So in Egypt, only the priests were circumcised, right? Then you get to Israel and all God's people are circumcised. Basically saying, all these people are priests. All these people are committed to the service of God. And the, the, the reason it was on the most intimate part was meant to be like this symbol of like deep affection connection, right? So it's pretty significant, right? It kind of seems a little bit like graphic and arbitrary. But what happens is uh, God is taking Egyptian symbols and repurposing it for the purpose of Israel. But then even this, he's like, it's supposed to be this high picture of like, look at all my people, not just like the priests, not the radical ones. There's not two tiers in this kingdom. There's just all the people are devoted to the intimate service of Yahweh in all things. But at the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 30, you get this, this instruction that's saying that there's something better than this mark. Because they would get, everyone would get circumcised and they'd be like, wow. It's not just a few priests, but it's every household, every, every, every male, every, all of us. We're all have access to the Lord in this way. But in verse 30, he says, there'll be a time coming where the Lord your God will circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul that you may live. Saying that there's a better circumcision coming, a spiritual circumcision, that you won't just be committed from your external most intimate place, but from actually your internal most intimate place, which is your heart. And this is what Paul's getting at here. It's like you have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Meaning the Lord has reached into your heart and given you this mark of commitment to him from your most intimate place, not just your physical most intimate place, but your deep center of your soul, heart, emotional center that you are committed to the Lord from the inside out. This has happened to you. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. The Spirit does it to you. It's like one of the big things in, in Egypt was, you know, someone else circumcises you. <laughs> you don't circumcise yourself. It's the same spiritually. You don't do it to yourself. The Lord does it to you. We're, we're receiving this thing. We're walking in. And he's saying, you've been committed to the Lord from your heart, having been buried with him in baptism and risen to him in newness of life. You were dead and now you are alive. You have it. You're good. And it's not just you as an individual, but one of the things I love about this text, and in, in, in you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. So that phrase, made alive together, is actually one word in the Greek, and it's actually a word that Paul made up because it's nothing else like it exists anywhere in the ancient world. It's not just you all were made alive as individuals and then you came together, it's you were made alive together, one word, that as a group you're resurrected. It made me think about, I was at a son's playoff game a couple weeks ago, and there's this team, uh, we're playing the Pelicans, and there's this guy on the other team um, named Alvarado. Um, any of you guys are watching this? All you need to know is we hate him, right? <laughs> I don't know how much we hated him, um, but being at the game, we hate him. Every time the guy touched the ball, the whole crowd, ah! 
boo. They're just booing this guy. And I'm like, gosh, I didn't know we hated him. And, you know, about by the second quarter, I was booing him too. And I wasn't totally sure what was going on. You know, but it was like, but it was, there was like this animating power that all of us together, every time that guy touched the ball, we all started booing. And then later on, I went and looked up, why do we hate this guy? I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But it was like, you know, the, it was like the beehive, you know, you flick the hive and everything goes all at once. And that's what Paul's getting at here is there's like this, we all heard the voice of the Lord and were resurrected together into one people that we were made alive together, not as individuals, but together. Is that your understanding that when Christ died and he's risen, that it's not just you all as individuals did this and you happen to come here, but the body of Christ, the people of God all together were, were, were resurrected. We, we heard the same call, the same guy touched the ball and we're just, we're now we're buzzing. That Paul is assembling a people who are connected together and animated together and we hate the same things and we love the same things and that's part of what makes us a people. We're made alive together with him, having been forgiven all our trespasses. Forgiven our trespasses. Forgiveness is complicated. There's a lot of talk in the media about should we forgive student loans or not, right? And I'd just like to say the official church position on student loan forgiveness. Just kidding, I'm not gonna do that. Um, <laughs> um, but the thing about forgiveness is someone still has to pay, right? If I, you know, loan one of you 40 bucks and you owe me 40 bucks and then I just forgive the loan, I'm, I'm absorbing the cost. It doesn't go into nothing. I absorb the cost, right? And so the whole student loan forgiveness thing, it's like, well, who absorbs the cost, right? Is it the billionaires? Is it everybody? Is it blah, 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 blah? And that's the real debate. Who absorbs the cost? Who's going to pay? Right? And we, we got to understand that because God is a good judge, there is real debt, that needs to be forgiven. And when he says that he forgave us, what he means is that he forgave us, that he absorbed the cost. He didn't just forget about it. You know, there's some people I'm sure I might owe 30 bucks or 40 bucks and they just forgot, right? They absorbed the cost on accident without knowing about it. It's called accidental forgiveness. That's not the Lord. He remembers. He on purpose decides I'll absorb the cost. And that's what he gets out here is that canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, set aside, nailing it to the cross. Where does the debt go? It's nailed to the cross. No more bills. All right, one of the hardest things, I think, when you're trying to like, you know, we had a, we had a kid and then, you know, you, you pay the bill and then you pay that bill and then there's like three weeks later like, oh, and also this bill and then like four weeks later like, oh, and also this bill and then six weeks later you're like, the audiologist was out of network, what the heck, you know, and, and also this bill, and then it's like, uh, you know, then, like, I went to the dentist the other day, and I paid the bill, and then I got a bill in the mail that was, like, oral hygiene instruction, and, like, 95 bucks, they taught me how to brush my teeth, I'm not paying this bill, you know, it's like, and there's, like, surprise bills, right, and you're like, are you kidding me, these surprise bills? I thought we paid this bill, what's the deal with these surprise bills? And I, you get the note in the mail that says paid in full and you're like, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> you know, because they'll probably come up with a way. I feel like, you know, I'm not totally cynic, but I'm like, I feel like part of the main deal is like they just grind you down and you get forgetful and you just start paying stuff without knowing what's going on. And so I tend to like, my general strategy is wait a month and if they still want it, then I'll maybe I'll pay them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> one of us is going to forget before the other one does, you know. <laughs> But I think a lot of us are insecure in our relationship to God 
because if you're like, yeah, he paid that bill, but is there like this other bill coming? I keep racking up more debt. I keep sinning. Sins I'm aware of, sins I'm unaware of. Keep feeling surprised. Oh, I'm still doing that one. Uh, I know he died for a lot of my sins, but am I going to get hit with some surprise bill at the end of time? He's going to say, like, I died for 98% of it, but too bad. Here's a surprise bill for eternity. <laughs> and in that sense, I, I think that we have a hard time just fully and finally resting in the fact that we're debt-free, that our debt, he canceled it and he nailed it to the cross. There's not another cross. When we follow Jesus, we're not paying off additional debts. We're not getting hit with unsurprised bills. That God is not like some kind of uh, you know, shake you down person who's constantly trying to get more out of you. He's going, I saw you the sins you had committed when you met me, I saw the sins you were going to commit when you met me, and I fully put all of that on the cross before you were even born. See, part of what I want us to understand is like our sins aren't paid for when we exercise faith in Jesus. Our sins are paid for on the cross. It doesn't say canceling a record of debt on the grounds of our faith. No, we're, our, the record of debt is canceled on the grounds of being nailed to the cross. Part of becoming a Christian is not, is, is recognizing that my debt has been paid. It's a surprise. I don't know if you've ever like been in line at a Starbucks and you get to the front and they're like, hey, the person in front of you, they bought your drink. You're like, oh, surprise, it's paid for. That's what I feel like my conversion was like when I came to Christ. It was like, man, I'm not, and I get to the checkout line, like, hey, the person in front of you paid for your debt. Surprise, you're good to go. And it's like, what? Okay, cool. And like, do you want to pass it on the person behind you? And you're like, no, I don't. Thank you very much. And you drive away, you know. <laughs> and then, but, but think with me, like, feel with me. Like, I hope all of us, that when we think about coming to faith in Jesus, that like the core emotion is surprise. You're debt free. No hidden bills coming totally forgiven. He absorbed the cost. There's nothing more to give. That the loans have been forgiven. The debts have been called in. He's not waiting around considering what's going on. That all of our tendency to go and try to cover up and hide and make these vegan clothes and hide ourselves and shield ourselves, all of that. Real Christian maturity looks like stop helping me save you. So when we talk about confessing our sin, there's obvious times where we're like, we do bad stuff or we don't do the good stuff we should do. But one of the things I want us to be in the habit of confessing and repenting for is for trying to help God save us. <laughs> When's the last time you confessed to the Lord? Sorry for helping you save me. <laughs> or not for helping you save me. Sorry for trying to help you save me. Sorry for not trusting that the debt's fully paid. I have this memory of we got a, you know, a bill for like $7.12 and my dad wrote back a check for $7.14 and was like, ah, they have to mail me a two cent reimbursement check now. <laughs> uh, you, can, you can try to pay more on top of what's already paid, but it's not doing anything. It doesn't work like that. It's paid in full. You can rest. And so let me pray that we would actually rest in that. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Help us really rest. 
pray that we wouldn't buy into the human tradition and its various forms of trying to cover up and hide and do our own thing. But God, as we received you, let us walk in that reception. Pray that we'd abound in thanksgiving and that as we sing and praise and worship, that you'd help us sense and see and believe that our debt is fully paid, that we are made alive, that you've made us committed to you from the heart. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and...